Welcome to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy are making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to incorporate virtual reality into your classroom to enhance student learning. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is Craig Freilich of the Canadian International School in Singapore. How did you imagine the classroom of the future when you were a student? Were there robot teachers? Flying cars passing by the window? Was school actually in space? While we all knew that the world of the Jetsons was never within our reach, we did expect education to change considerably. However, for most people, including myself, the classrooms of our youth and the curricula of our youth have remained pretty similar. That's why when I hear about technology like virtual reality in the classroom, it tends to get mentally categorized beside Marty McFly's hoverboard. Nevertheless, talking to Craig has opened my eyes to what virtual reality can do right now. And it's so much more than I expected, and perhaps will surprise you as well. During our conversation, Craig mentions a bunch of VR games and applications, as well as books to check out. And I've put a list of links for them on the website which you can get to through the show notes. Good luck on your newest not-so-impossible lesson with special agent Craig Freilich. So Craig, thank you so much for taking the time in my tomorrow while I'm sitting in your yesterday to sit down and, and talk to me all the way from Singapore. I, I appreciate it, and I know the listeners appreciate it as well. And to begin, do you mind just taking a moment to talk about who you are, and what your role is in education. Absolutely. First of all, Aviva, thank you for having me. It's always wonderful to talk about technology and education. So I've been a teacher wearing many hats for about 26 years now. And in my entire career, my DNA has always been the shiny new toy or what's the efficacy of uh, a particular technology. I remember back in the 90s when we first started teaching with the internet and at the back of the room sat one computer and as teachers it was so new to us and we had to figure out the efficacy of how to use one computer and the internet to leverage learning. And so I've always spent my entire career kind of looking at the next new, you know, I'm using air quotes here, shiny toy and, and how it might be effectively used as a wonderful teaching tool for students. As far as other things, I, I've taught science for more than 15 years. I'm currently a design and technology teacher at an international school here in Singapore that uses the Canadian curriculum and I'm enjoying every moment of it. No snow here. The reason that we're talking today and what made me so excited to talk to you was virtual reality, which seems, even though in 2020, we've been promised this forever, 
it seems still so futuristic, but you are doing some really cool things in the moment, not just talking about the future. And do you mind speaking to that a little bit? Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, we I could speak for hours on this topic again. Uh, it's always been my passion to figure out what the best use case scenario is for a tool or, you know, some people call them toys. Uh, I call them tools. And, you know, my origin story with VR uh, comes from my experience with my son, who's now uh, 18 and he goes to UBC. We were uh, in Calgary, Alberta, walking the mall and there was a Microsoft store. And on the front of the store was a display with a brand new HTC Vive headset, which is a fairly high-end headset. And he he wasn't a huge gamer, but he liked his games. And so he convinced me to stop and sign a whole bunch of forms. And he wanted to try it out. And I watched him and I could see sort of on screen, but he was adamant that I actually put on the headset. And I did. And it was at that moment that I was convinced that this is a very powerful tool because it was way more realistic and immersive than I envisioned. When I put on the headset, I literally felt like I was there. The particular application uh, was a company called Valve created this mini experience called the lab. And one of them was Vesper's Peak, where you walked along sort of the side of a Rocky Mountain. And you could, I'm scared of heights, but I kind of could look over the edge and I literally was sweating. It was so real and had a little dog companion that walked beside me and I could interact with it. And the little robot dog, you know, made me feel comfortable in the situation and having this sense of realism and presence. And I think the technical cognitive term is embodiment where your brain really feels like you're there. And because of that, it made me start to think about this tool and the efficacy of it in education. It's one of those things, I think, too, where you have to experience it to really grasp what it's like. My only experience was I was at a technology museum in Japan, and they had a setup that where you could try it out. And I was what I was in line. And this particular simulation was you were underwater in a shipwreck. And I was watching all these people kind of react and jump to and because there was a shark that like swims by you or a, a large whale. And I remember thinking to myself like, oh, well, now that I know that there's something to react to there, I won't react. But I probably did the loudest squeak out of anyone in that line because until you're fully, like you said, embodying it you just don't realize how immersive it can be. And when Google Cardboard first came out, I feel like, and you'll hear this from other educators who dabble in VR, that it sort of wrecked it for the better VR that's out there. The better VR would be something called Six Degrees of Freedom or Sixed Off, where your head and your hands can move around instead of Google Cardboard, which is just something called Three Degrees of Freedom, where you're, it's like a head on a stick. You can look left and right or up and down, but that's it. And so Google Cardboard sort of wrecked it for many because that's the first sort of image of what VR was like for them. And now that you have, you know, the Oculus Quest and I talked about the HTC Vive where the, the, the room you're in, you're allowed to move around and you can pick things up and you have 
haptics where your hands are buzzing to release this dopamine response to your brain. And it just, it's, it's the next closest thing to the real thing, which then unpacks sort of what the utility might be for educators. And I think, again, Google Cardboard sort of uh, wrecked the stage because the low-hanging fruit is, okay, let's put on uh, a VR headset that is six degrees of freedom, but let's just have them pick up a three-dimensional part and have them look around. And the book I recently just published talks about that's not the true superpowers of VR. VR, the higher-end six-degree-of-freedom VR, is meant to be highly experiential, where you're forcing the learner to interact in ways that they should be, almost like, um, you know, I never forget, and I still to this day uh, have fond memories of when my physics teacher took us to an amusement park to learn about roller coasters. So we rode the roller coaster, we talked, and and we got to actually, you know, look at the parts to the, the roller coaster mechanisms, and we had to do a bunch of calculations. We had a project that really came alive because we went and visited this amusement park and, you know, we were using our hands. And again, I think higher end VR, that's its superpower is to teach these bigger conceptual systems, thinking identity, you know, change balance. These are hard things to teach. Like think of back to your shark thing, swimming with other fish in a school in VR where a shark comes up to you, Ultimately, what a powerful sort of message about, you know, instinct. How would you react to that? And it would be very visceral. You know, how do you how else would you teach instinct? Well, it's hard. It's hard to teach these bigger ideas. And I believe VR uh, is the tool to do that. Another one that I tried was an educational tool program where you were in the solar system. And so you had a sense of the scale of the solar system and the the planet's size and distance, and you could use the tools to, you know, go hundreds of thousands of kilometers in like a second, but visit the different planets and, and learn about them. And I remember thinking like, wow, this would have brought this unit in science absolutely alive. I truly feel like I understand to a better extent the scale and vastness of our solar system. But really, realistically, am I ever in my teaching career going to see this in a school? Because, you know, this one headset that I'm trying out is like thousands and thousands of dollars. Like, do you have a sense of what the timeline is before we get every kid exploring the solar system together in a VR environment? Good question. I believe the, the application that you tried was Titans of Space. And uh, as far as your question about headsets, even just a month ago, uh, Facebook, who owns Oculus, and Oculus is a big VR headset company, had announced something called the Oculus Quest 2. And the Oculus Quest 2 is 299 US dollars. And it is immersive, high-end, six degrees of freedom VR that I've been sort of raving about and talking about where you can move up and down and you have hands and haptics and sounds. And so I think we're, we're at that point because 
again, my son going through school, I remember we had to get him a TI-83 or a TI-85 calculator for his math classes. And it cost us, you know, 220 Canadian dollars and we didn't balk at that. So having a headset that does so much more than a TI-80 whatever calculator at 299 US dollars and yet VR is still in its infancy. I believe we're we're there. We're at a point where it can be affordable. But further to your point, I don't think the intention of VR is for kids to be in there for long periods of time. I still think that, you know, learning should be holistic and there should be a balance of different types of activities. I do believe though that there are, as I've alluded to, hard things to teach, big concepts that I think are best done with a tool like VR. You know, uh, Stanford VR with uh, one of the uh, professors there, Jeremy Balinson, has been doing some amazing work and research in virtual reality. And they came out with this experience called Becoming Homeless. And it, it teaches you incredible empathy toward the plight of homeless people and it you know step one they put you in this apartment and you're in the apartment and you have to walk around and pretty soon this announcement at the door someone knocks and says we're sorry but you've been evicted you can't pay your bills start selling some of your stuff so you have to decide what in your apartment you want to sell and you try and sell it and you know each scenario is slightly different but ultimately usually what happens is you you don't get enough money to pay the rent so they kick you out and you live in your car so you're sitting there in your car and you can look around and see that, you know, there's stuff in your car from what you've eaten for supper the night before. And then this policeman comes up and knocks on your window and says, you can't park in the street here, you know, and then it brings you to living on the bus and you have this one backpack left of stuff. And there are other people on the bus and you start to learn their plight. And there's a man on the bus who wants to steal your backpack. And, you know, the experience goes on and on. And what a visceral way to teach that, homelessness isn't always just the fault of the individual. You know, there are certain circumstances where, you know, some people on, on the street are helpless and, you know, we need to help them along the way. And what a great way to teach that. You mentioned the name of the program that I had tried and then this homelessness simulator. What are some other really educationally focused programming that's happening right now? Yeah, I mean, I could go on, but some of my favorites, and, and I write about them in my book, uh, one is called Fantastic Contraption. So with Fantastic Contraption, it would be a, an amazing STEM application. So you're, you're in this world, this environment, you know, and you have to build a contraption. You have wheels, you have other springs and devices, and, you know, it's been slightly gamified to increase the engagement you know that brings up another really big point about you know kids these days you know why is it that they love games so much and and more importantly many of them have no problem failing within a game and starting over and trying again whereas in a classroom you know how difficult is it for us to teach growth mindset and you know they're they're they they feel much more defeated at you know, failure within a classroom than they do within a gaming environment. And it's because games, you know, are very personal. It's almost like the goal is so well laid out for them. So anyway, fantastic contraption. You have to build this 
device that moves this little jelly ball sort of through this environment to hit this big jelly wall. So you need to learn about, you know, systems and how wheels work. And there's these little motors that you have to do and it gets more complex. So that students level up each environment gets a little bit harder. And uh, again, it's a beautiful STEM application to apply their understanding of, you know, wheels and levers and uh, energy transfer. So that's one. Um, another amazing one that uh, is also science or STEM related is called Gadgeteer. And Gadgeteer is like uh, Rube Goldberg on steroids where you have, you know, dominoes. And it has a sandbox mode where students can just go and play and muck about. But it also has a campaign mode where they're challenged to build some sort of Rube Goldberg contraption that meets certain criteria depending on uh, the room or the scene. And all of these have a theme to them. One is, you know, I use this acronym in my book called CRISP. CRISP, basically, I argue that if you are going to buy a VR headset, you want to ensure that you're doing it for the right reasons. And I use the acronym CRISP. CRISP stands for the VR application should connect to some big idea or concept. So don't use VR or VR headsets if you're trying to get them to memorize and learn facts. And then R is connected or find VR applications that are related to real life. I stands for make it interrogative or provocative. So kids should be able to tackle, you know, edgy, debatable understandings and underpinnings, like my example with, you know, the plight of homeless people. Uh, S stands for, of course, link it to standards. And then P stands for planned. So VR doesn't operate on its own. We have to still think about and methodically plan out a, a good lesson. So what are some pre-VR questions? What are some things that they need to think about before they put the VR headset on? When they're in the VR headset, what are some things they need to pay attention to? And then, of course, reflection questions after once the VR experience is done. Is the VR technology at a point where two students can exist in the same environment together? Or is it still just a one-person exploration? Oh, what a fantastic question. Because uh, kids are inherently social and, you know, working as a team, you know, communicating together on the same thing within VR is very powerful. And yes, uh, there are many VR applications, which we would call uh, multiplayer, even just social VR right now with COVID-19, there are more and more schools exploring the idea of having a space or a room, which teachers can design that look like a classroom where everyone enters with their VR headset on. You know, one example is Engage. So Engage, when you look it up, is a VR platform where you control the environment and you can have other people with VR headsets enter with a proper room code. And then you can, you could didactically teach almost like a, like a lecture. Or you could have objects that make they have to interact with within Engage. And then there, are, of course, there are also VR apps where kids have to work together as a team. Uh, Tilt Brush used to be single player. This is a painting VR app. But now I believe Tilt Brush is multiplayer, which means 
one or more individuals could go into this tilt brush environment and they have sort of unlimited supplies of paint and types of paint brushes. They could paint with paper and duct tape or just regular type paint and they could work together as a team to come up with some amazing artistic, albeit three-dimensional uh, object or structure. That's amazing. So I have to admit that prior to this conversation, I was still thinking that VR was super expensive and not necessarily something that would easily be brought into a classroom, but it sounds like it's there. It's just maybe there's not as many early adopters such as yourself, but what timeline are you looking for where you think that we're going to be seeing this a lot more in everyday classrooms? I wish I had a, a crystal ball for that. Uh, you know, my hope and my wish is as soon as possible. Uh, I know I've been using it for four years now with students within my own classes, as well as helping other teachers in schools try and make a roadmap for uh, getting VR in their district or school. Uh, and it, without question, if it, as I talked about before, if it's used for the right learning targets, i.e. to help teach interactive, real-world, big ideas, kids are, are, they're walked away just wanting more. You know, I think we all agree that education needs to allow kids to enjoy, lean in, engage, be curious, and when done right, VR does this so magically. So I think I don't have a crystal ball. My hope is, you know, as soon as possible. I see uh, through LinkedIn and Twitter that thanks to uh, the price of this new Oculus Quest 2 at only 299 US dollars, that sales have been going through the roof. You know, I don't have necessarily stats on how many of those are for education institutions, but I get this growing sense that, you know, the curve is more exponential than linear when it comes to VR adoption. And how many sets do you have for a class? I'm imagining it's not 30 for 30 students. Do you have a couple that people take turns with? How does that work? The most I've ever had is five for a class of approximately 25. The least I've ever had is two for a class of approximately 25 kids. And in all those situations or scenarios, VR has always been a learning station. So I might be teaching something, uh, you know, I'm a, currently I'm a design teacher. So we might design, you know, we had a sustainability unit where students had to learn about how to create a sustainable house. And in that situation, they would design a 3D model of their sustainable house. And then they could port that into a VR headset and be able to walk around their home they could go inside their house. They could get a, a better perspective or point of view. You know, often when kids try and design things, things on the computer, especially 3D spatial models, their sense of size and scale is quite poor or off. But once they put a VR headset on and they walk around their house or creation, they get a way better understanding of size, kind of like your uh, uh, Titans in space example. And so... Uh, in that case, kids will uh, hop into a VR headset for like 10 or 15 minutes and then go back to working on what they... So more or less right now, it's a station. Kids would cycle through that as a learning station. 
Are there any situations where students just can't engage with the VR? So when I was doing Titans in Space, I definitely had this moment when I first put it on and I was in space where I had this like 10 second existential crisis where I truly realized how small I am in the scheme of things. And I was having this small crisis, of course, in front of a lineup of people. (laughs) But like there was a moment. I have to admit, where I just kind of wanted to like tear it off. Are there situations where kids just can't engage with the VR? Uh, absolutely. And you want to walk them through, you know, safety protocols, things like that beforehand to consider. Uh, it's much more rare now than two or three years ago where frame rate and developers getting their VR experiences or applications with the correct frame rate was a little bit off in the early days. And there was more instances of people who felt VR sick, as you alluded to. Today, nowadays, I think that has been such a careful consideration that I've rarely seen this year or even in the last year and a half students saying, you know, they felt woozy or or anything like that. But again, doing diligence, A, you want to talk about that ahead of time. B, you know, you want to have spotters. So you want to have someone around to make sure that they're close enough if they do feel sick or ill that you, as soon as you grab their arm, that usually is a trigger for most students to say, okay, you know, I'm not, this isn't real or, you know, I'm, the real world is still here to help me. And then you always just say to them, you know, uh, if you need to sit down or take the headset off, that, that there's a chair close by. So those are some things to mitigate. The other thing that I do notice, and more so with females than males, is VR headsets are still quite heavy and big. Even the newest rendition, which is the Oculus Quest 2, is still, you know, my wife is a fairly petite individual. And she still, if she wears it for more than half an hour, it's quite kind of strenuous on her head but for middle school kids they're quite self-conscious and so some don't want to in front of their peers have this funny bulky looking device on their head and so you have to try and give them a bit of privacy my one of my stations is up just outside of the classroom so that when someone's in vr it is with the exception of them having a spotter a private space so the student knows then that they're not sitting sort of amongst 25 other people just staring at them watching because students will you know without meaning to be mean will giggle as someone's doing stuff in vr and lots of students don't want that they don't want to feel self-conscious that they're being watched like that forgive me if this is a naive question but Like, for instance, teaching in BC, there was always concerns around where uh, software was made and where data was being stored and couldn't be stored on American servers. Are there data or privacy issues in any aspect of VR? Or is it like an Xbox where it's just kind of yours? And Or even Xboxes, they're connected to the internet. I'm thinking like old school, like here's your Atari, go do with it what you will. Aviva, you have just opened up Pandora's box when it comes to VR. <laughs> it's the wild, wild west right now. I think uh, early adopters like myself uh, are just waiting for... Uh, bigger 
policymakers to wrap their head around, you know, what that looks like. You know, another obvious concern is that the biggest player right now in VR is Facebook, who owns Oculus. And they uh, have, in many documentaries, been accused of uh, data mining. And so is it a bit of a worry and has it been, is it a bit of a worry? Yes. Has it been addressed and uh, kind of unpacked in the field of education? Not yet, but it will need to be. Like what better product placement could you get to than to virtually have that product placed in the environment that someone's in? Yeah. I mean, advertising has not been a thing yet in VR. All the VR apps and the platforms that you access those VR apps, when you put the headset on, you get no ads whatsoever. You know, will that come? I'm not sure. The big concern, though, the big ethical concern, of course, is that there is biometric data that a VR headset could provide to whoever. Um, Some headsets have eye tracking. So, you know, great for advertising. In other words, let's say you had a virtual grocery store and you had someone with their VR headset enter that grocery store. It tracks your eye movement. Like, are they looking at my product higher up on the shelf or lower down on the shelf? And what colors trigger more eye contact than others? Um, And then things like biometric data, like, you know, what are your mannerisms? And, you know, you can tell because your headset is calibrated to your uh, height, like collecting height information on people. This is, as I said before, this is Pandora's box, which, you know, certainly could be a concern if we're not uh, addressing the right questions like the one you asked. Like you said, it'll be an interesting thing to watch because I think if I've learned anything around technology laws, they all seem to be at least 10, but usually 20 years behind whatever the technology happens to be. Yes, well said. I mean, think of cars. We didn't put seatbelts and require and mandate seatbelts in cars for I don't know how long, right? My usual question that I like to ask people is about giving them unlimited funds, time, and control for their ideal classroom, but I'd like to modify that a little bit to say, what would your ideal VR integration look like? And I I know it's not going to be 100% VR, because you did make that excellent point about it just being a tool out of many in an integrative model of education, but what's your dream My dream first would start with the right curricula. So again, I think one of the stumbling blocks and one of the reasons why many educational institutions and school districts are balking at VR is because they still are holding this industrial model about education that we have to, you know, it's called coverage. We have to get through the curricula. You know, Craig... I don't have room for VR in my chemistry class because I've got to get through the chemistry curricula. And that frustrates me because I think kids deserve more. And I think we we all know this. Like, how do we learn nowadays? Many of us go on YouTube and we'll figure it out. I just fixed the door the other day and I grew up in a household where my dad didn't teach me how to fix anything. And we need to start to craft schools who are way more flexible at adopting, you know, broad-based 
learning objectives, which then enable students to explore and discover and create. And VR would be the ultimate tool for that. So if the school was set up with the right ethos and philosophy, then having a one-to-one, even though the whole day wouldn't be with the headset on, would be the ultimate situation. And that headset, you know, it might sit on their desk or in their locker for a few periods a day because they need to be active and they need to, you know, be part of the real world. But they would also be using their headset for many powerful things that just can't be done in the real world. Lastly, obviously, I will put a link to your book in the show notes. And so people can check that out as well as links to your website and your social media. But are there any other people either online or books that you would recommend people that are interested in incorporating VR classroom seek out? Yeah, I mean, it shouldn't surprise you, but, uh, or one of the books that helped craft my book wasn't VR related at all. Uh, Mario Livio wrote a book called Why? What Makes Us Curious? And that book really helped shape sort of my understanding of how VR should be used. You know, he talks a lot in his uh, well-researched book about you know, why are younger children so much more curious than older adults and older children? And what is, what are the conditions that we need to replicate to sustain curiosity in people? And so I highly recommend that book. And, uh, you know, I pull out several quotes from his book and apply it to VR and what VR uh, experiences should be to enable and ensure that students are being curious about what they see and their learning. The other important books that I think people would learn a lot from when it comes to uh, VR and even virtual reality and education is a book by Professor Jeremy Balenson. His book, Experience on Demand, talks a bit about, but won't bore you to death on the history of VR, but more importantly, he gets into the best use case scenarios on how VR will change the world. Thank you so much again for sharing your professional experience with VR, as well as some of the other experiences and opportunities that teachers can seek out to bring into their own classrooms. Thank you, Aviva. You've, ha- you've been a gracious host. And as I said, you ask really good questions. Oh, well, thank you so much. episode will not self-destruct in five seconds, but will remain available on your preferred podcasting platform. More details about this episode, links to resources or people we mentioned, and information in general about the podcast and its mission can be found at lessonimpossible.com. If you enjoy the podcast, you can help other listeners discover it by rating and reviewing on iTunes, forwarding it to a colleague, or posting a link in your favorite educational chat. This has been Less Than Impossible, and I was your host, Aviva Levin.